So perhaps you can relate to this scene. Uh, For me, it was a long time ago. For some of you, maybe even in the present, you find yourself in a college classroom. Now, I realize right now you may not be in the classroom. You may be sitting in your house, but you're able to attend a college class where a philosophy professor is authoritatively attempting to convince you that all you need to arrive at the truth is sufficient evidence plus human reason. Sufficient evidence plus human reason, you will arrive at the truth. Now, here's what I want to acknowledge. I realized that when I said the word philosophy, some of you, your eyes began to roll back in your head, right? I know. Because even though it was a long time ago, I remember one philosophy class for me, I, I still can picture the professor. He is laying on his back on the desk, playing with an Etch-a-Sketch. Remember Etch-a-Sketches? Remember the thing? He's laying on his back, playing with an Etch-a-Sketch, talking about the sea of being. I'm like, this dude's crazy. Until I realized he's getting paid to do this. What a gig. What a gig. And then I realized I'm actually the one who's paying him to do this. Who's the crazy one in the room, right? I'm just saying, I get it. When I say the word philosophy, some of you, it's just sort of this out-the-door move. But here's why this matters. When he teaches this truth, let's go back to that that phrase. When he teaches this truth, here's what he says. When it comes to the evidence for God, he says there's not sufficient evidence And there there never will be sufficient evidence. Therefore, the best that you can do is is just become a a logical agnostic, if you will. An agnostic is simply a person who who says the existence of God is, is unknowable. Or the professor will say, you could just negate reason, negate all logic, and just take this leap of faith. But you can never be a reasonable believer because there's never sufficient evidence that God exists. The problem with what he is assuming, that evidence and reason are enough to lead us to the truth, actually ignores a few things that we as Jesus followers actually know to be true. One is he is ignoring the inability of fallen human reason. And when I use the word fallen, it's the word sinful. He is is ignoring the inability of sinful human reason to grasp divine revelation by ourself. Where does that come from? Here's where it comes from. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's what I mean. The God of this age, that's the enemy, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He says, look, because of our sin, Our ability to see the light, our ability to just reason on our own. He he goes, look, that, that has been affected by our sin. But God brings light out of darkness. That's what we know. Our God knows and is willing to move that he turns the light on for us what we normally cannot see. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians. Check it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. So sufficient evidence plus human reason, we get to the truth. 
But our struggle is that because of our sin, we can look at the evidence. We can look at the knowledge. We can look at the logic. And and we just struggle to grasp the truth unless God opens our eyes. Unless he grants us repentance and faith, it's sort of like a blind person who looks at the sun. You simply cannot see. We all lack that capacity of understanding and apprehending spiritual truth by ourselves. And you're like, why in the world, Jeff, will we be talking about this? Because today, Jesus is going to deal with this. We have arrived at Luke chapter 11, and today, Jesus is going to deal with this. So here's why it matters. Maybe you are a Jesus follower, and sometimes you just so struggle to understand, why is it that this person seems to be able to see it when I say, here's who Jesus is, and this person can't see it? Today, we're going to understand a little more of why that's the case. Or maybe today you are someone who is yourself beginning to see the truth of who Jesus is. Well, today is going to help us understand really the miracle that's going on for us to be able to see such truth. So I'm glad you're here. I want to welcome everybody today. So want to Thank you for being willing to spend some time with us. Um, As I said, we are marching through a series where we're teaching all the way through the gospel of Luke. And we are in chapter 11 today, which means we we still got a lot to go in Luke. And then we're going to keep going with Luke's story eventually the rest of the year. And we're going to truck through uh, the book of Acts. It's really just one story. Today, I want to introduce a tool to you. Um, It is simply... Um, what I'm going to call a journal, all right? But it's a Bible and a journal in one. And so it's just a little tool that we found where if you want one of these, we want to get it in your hand. Um, Basically, you got scripture on one side, so it just takes you through the entire gospel of Luke. But on the other page is blank, so that as you're working your way through each morning, you're reading another section of Scripture, you can jot down some of those things that God's saying to you. When we come together in a setting like this, there's a place for you to maybe jot down some of the, of the truths that God's showing. I personally think these are so valuable, not only because when you write something down, it becomes, you know, like seven times more sure that you're really going to retain it and you're going to do something with it. But I'm also telling you to have something to look back on later. And the more years that I walk this out, the more I realize even one day somebody, like your grandkids, To just be able to thumb through something where they can witness God at work in your life, there is just value in this, all right? So I I know at each campus, there are some that are available today. You can check them out at uh, each of the the eye centers if you want one. Um, I I know we don't have enough today for everybody, but we'll make an order so that we've we've got them by this next week. Um, If you're joining us online, right there on the website where the information is found about the reading plan, It'll also tell you where you can order one for yourself. I want to encourage you to do it. It's just a few dollars. It's like less than five bucks. Um, So not a lot of money investment, but I believe it would be well worth um, the, the, the funds to do that. So Luke chapter 11, here's the setting. We are now just months away from the cross. It's, it's kind of weird when you read the first part of Luke, you don't realize how much time is passing in between every chapter. But we are well less than a year from Jesus going to the cross. And although there are certainly people who are genuinely following him, the majority of the nation of Israel is rejecting him. And a big part of that rejection is because the religious leaders are rejecting him. We'll talk about why today. 
what they had said about Jesus in Galilee, they are now starting to say the same thing about Jesus in Judea. He is doing what he's doing like casting out demons. He's doing it in the power of Satan. (laughs) Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like Satan's going to actually cast out demons, right? But that's what they're accusing him of being of the devil. So what we're going to see is that Jesus concentrates on the final instructions that he's going to give to those disciples as he's going to the cross. He's going to continue to reach out to, to the outcast, to the broken, with a, with a message of grace and forgiveness. But the biggest change is he begins consistently speaking judgment against the religious leaders who are rejecting him and leading the people toward doing the same. So here we go. Luke chapter 11, I'm just going to pick up with verse 29. Here's how Jesus opens. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. Now, don't miss the first words. As the crowds are increasing, crowds are growing. By chapter 12, you're going to read that the crowds are getting so big that they literally are stepping on one another. That's what it says. Why? Miracles. Jesus is doing miracles. And his teaching is unlike anything that they've ever heard before. But Jesus is clear here. He's not asking a question. His statement is, this is a wicked generation. Apparently, Jesus never took the class on how to grow a church. He didn't. He does not know that in order to to gain a crowd, you got to make people feel good about themselves. He, he, He has not heard, right? Everybody is tired of hearing what's wrong. They need to hear about joy. Come on, Jesus. Now, I'm going to agree that I think for most of us, we do need a much bigger dose of the joy that Jesus gives. We should remind each other of that often. But listen to what I'm about to tell you. There is no joy if we try to come to God without confronting our sin. There is no joy with, when we try to come to God without confronting our sin. Now, here's what's shocking about the statement that Jesus is making here. We read it and we just go, okay, this is, this is a w- wicked generation. But here's what is most surprising. Jesus is speaking this to a group of people who by comparison to the rest of the world are some of the best people you're ever going to find. This is not a godless culture. He's saying it to people who would have been the most moral. They are the most religious. They are the most God conscious of any society anywhere in the world. They are not people who flaunt their wickedness. They are not blatantly evil. They're, they're not intentionally idol worshipers. They're not lawbreakers. He's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to Israel. God's people whom God has always given his law to. I mean, these people, they they are fanatically concerned about keeping the law. Their their schedule is determined by the the religious duties and and the ceremonies that they would keep. These are the best people you're gonna find. Here's what Jesus said about them. He said on the outside, they were clean. In other words, these people are moral. But he said on the inside, they are spiritually wicked in a most dangerous way. Here is a major point of Luke chapter 11 
that you and I need to pay attention to. Here's this. Religion and morality cut people off from salvation by giving the illusion of a right relationship with God. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm talking about without Jesus. All right, so if you need to put that in your notes, you can put that in your notes. I'm not the guy that's saying that all religion is bad. I'm not. I'm certainly not the guy that's saying we don't need to worry about morality. I'm not. I'm saying that on their own, religion and morality cut people off from salvation by giving the illusion of a right relationship with God. When it comes to responding to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it sometimes seems better off for somebody to almost be irreligious than to be religious. The reason is because sometimes moral and religious people feel that they're good enough. Because I can always find somebody that I can out-moral. And so sometimes it, it leaves us feeling that we're good enough. It leaves us feeling that because of our goodness and because of the religious things that we've done, we have, we have gained a measure of favor with God. Here's what the Bible calls that, self-righteousness. Not God's righteousness, but, but self-righteousness. But see, the good news of Jesus actually starts with some bad news. And the bad news is, is that we all have rebelled against God. All. And that there is nothing good in me. Nothing. My morality, no matter how it stacks up compared to you, counts for nothing in terms of me gaining a right relationship with God. And I am hopeless to change that. That is true for everybody. This is why the religious people hated Jesus because he called them on the diagnosis. He actually revealed this is your true condition. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus describes what happens when we try to do this on our own. He says it's like a man who decides to fix his life. So he's going to get religion. He's going to work on morality. He's going to clean up his act. And in doing so, the, the demon who has been operating through the, the sinfulness of his life is now right not able to, to do what the demon wants to do. And so the story is the demon leaves. But eventually he comes back. And when he comes back, he brings seven more with him. And this life that looks clean, he says, ends up being worse than it was in the beginning. Now that's kind of a freaky story. But the point is clear. And the worst state that you can ever be in I'm convinced, is a state of self-righteousness, self-imposed morality, religion, where I try to clean up my own life, which really means I'm just sweeping superficially because I'm not actually doing anything about my heart. And my experience has been that the demonic sometimes operates most effectively, and by effectively, I'm going to say the word deadly, in religious people. Remember Luke chapter 4? I'm sure you do. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in church in his hometown, and it's time for his first sermon. Remember that? And he looks at these group. It's this group of religious people. They're at church. This, this group of very moral people. They, they strive to keep the law. And this was his message to them. You are poor prisoners, blind and oppressed. In other words, you're not spiritually rich. You're not spiritually free. You're not spiritually seeing. You're, you're not spiritually escaping your guilt. They don't like him. 
Remember Luke chapter 5? Jesus calls a man named Matthew, Levi. Levi was a tax collector, and so when he meets Jesus, throws a big party and says, I'm going to invite all my tax collector friends to come meet Jesus too. Well, they're at the big party, and the story is the religious leaders began to grumble toward the disciples, and the question is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The bottom line is the leaders don't see themselves as sinners. Self-righteous people never do. Jesus said it's not those who are well that need a physician. It's those who are sick. If you don't think you're sick, you don't think you need a doctor. Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's no point in calling righteous people to repentance. They got nothing to repent of. This is why when you read the Sermon on the Mount, like in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes this statement. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying God doesn't accept superficial self-righteousness. If you do good, if you follow God's law, but it's only on the outside, nothing has changed with my heart. Then I've not only cut myself off from salvation, but I've also put myself in a position that it won't even appeal to me. That's scary. One more time, the statement, religion and morality. And again, apart from Jesus, cut people off from salvation by giving the illusion of a right relationship to God. Jesus continues. Let's read it. Verse 29. Again, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. If I'm not mistaken, there are times in the Bible that people ask for a sign. And God seems to be okay with that, right? One of the most famous, right, sign people in the Bible is good old Gideon, right? And he puts out the fleece. It even becomes a a figure of speech for us, right, for asking for a sign. Moses, they're, they're very faithful people who ask for a sign. So my question is, okay, what's wrong here with the fact that they are asking for a sign, And the answer that we continue to find as we journey through Luke is the heart. And I tell you over and over again, Jesus knows the heart. They want to see Jesus perform miracles, and they have. I mean, he has healed the sick. He has cast out demons. But the real issue for them, they are not willing to see their sin and to turn to Jesus in their need. They're not willing. So let's just make sure we're clear on sign. Uh, Seeking a sign is wrong when the real issue is refusing to turn to Jesus. So I don't want anybody walking out of here going, I can't ever ask God to give me clarity on this, or God, would you be willing to to give me something? We're not saying that today. What we're saying is Jesus knows it, though, when we always seem to be asking him for the next sign and the next sign and the next sign, but the real issue is not that we're really looking for direction. It's that we are actually refusing to trust him. These people want a good show. But then when they see Jesus do the next miracle, they simply explain it away. And now they've come to the point that they're actually accusing him of doing what he's doing in the power of Satan. Seriously? He cast out a demon. Like, Satan's really going to harm himself? Saying 
they want to sign is really just demonstrating, it is really just verbalizing their unbelief. They're almost saying, Jesus, it's your fault we don't believe because you won't pull off the next sign. You won't pull off the next sign. But they are rejecting everything about him. Jesus says, all right, going to be one final sign. And he calls it the sign of who? Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Now, some of you know Jonah's story. Some of you don't. So I want to encourage you to read it this week. If you've never actually read the whole story of Jonah, it is a tiny little book in the Bible. So you can look it up. You can find the page. Go read Jonah's story. There's just a few chapters there. But I'm going to give you the cliff notes today. Here's how it goes. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. God told him, go preach to this city called Nineveh. And you and I don't have any response to that whatsoever. But if you had lived in Jonah's day, the response would have been, anywhere, God, but Nineveh. You see, Nineveh in that day was the most brutal, the most wicked, truly the most ungodly place that most of them would associate on the planet. And so Jonah doesn't want to go, and the reason he doesn't want to go is because he knows enough about God that God's grace is magnificent. And Jonah is afraid that if he goes to Nineveh and he tells them they need to turn to God, they just might do it. And if they do it, then God is going to forgive them. You talk about racism. We got racism going on here. He does not want them to experience the blessing of God's forgiveness. So he gets on a ship and he heads the other direction. The story is a storm comes up while he's on board the ship. The people on the ship are trying to figure out why is this happening to us. Jonah basically says, you're looking at the reason. It's because of me. Here's what I'm doing. I'm running from God. They throw him overboard, and on his way down, he is swallowed by a monster fish. And while he's in the fish, he prays. (laughs) You're like, you think? He prays. And God hears his prayer, spits him out on the shore, and now Jonah seems willing to do what God tells him to do. Jonah marches through the city of Nineveh that takes him days. It's so, such a big place, so many people. And they are looking at a man who is proclaiming the word of God to them, who has been in a fish for three days. You tell him that story, everybody knows he's dead. He is dead, been in a fish for three days, and now he's alive. This is a sign. And so the king of Nineveh says, everybody, everybody, it's time to get serious with God. You call on God. We're each going to turn from our wickedness, and maybe God will relent and we won't die. In other words, Nineveh got the picture. They saw the judgment They saw what they deserved because of their sin. They believed this message was from God. God had done a miracle in getting that message to them. This was the sign of Jonah. And you say, are you sure? Jeff, are you sure? And I'm going to answer, I am absolutely sure. And here's why I'm absolutely sure. Because the words that we're reading today from Luke chapter 11 are almost identical to the words that we can read in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is when they accused Jesus of being uh, empowered by Satan when he was in Galilee. Luke chapter 11, they're accusing him of the same thing while he's in Judea. But these are Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here we are. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm sure. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. It's what we're trucking toward here in a few weeks that we're going to gather and celebrate the fact that Jesus died. He was buried. On the third day, he arose. 
What grace. I mean, what amazing grace when you read Luke chapter 11. These people who are always demanding another sign and all they're trying to do is manipulate Jesus and they really don't believe him. They're just trying to use him for the, for the next stunt. Jesus said, I'm going to give you another sign, but it's going to be the ultimate sign and we're not going to give it because you're demanding it. It's going to be given because God has determined graciously to give it. What greater sign could there be? That Jesus would die, be buried, and on the third day, rise. So, I wonder if these religious leaders would then believe. I wonder if once the ultimate sign is given, will they believe? We know the story when we read the Gospels, what happened at the tomb on Easter morning. We know there was an earthquake. We we know that the angel of the Lord rolls the stone away and then sits on top of it. I just think that's the coolest imagery. It's like, I hope we get a replay of that, like when we get to heaven. Like, I want to see the replay on that. Rolls the stone away. He's sitting on top. It, It says his appearance is like lightning. His garments are white as snow. And it says the guards who are supposed to be guarding this tomb, right, they saw it. It says they shook, and it says they became like dead men. In other words, we're talking sheer terror, semi-coma. That's what's going on. They know what they saw. Check this out in Matthew chapter 28, verse 12. When the chief priest, who's the chief priest? He's the leader of the leaders. He's the religious leader of the religious leaders. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, hmm, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. You talk about religious people, these are religious people. You talk about moral people, these are moral people. But you talk about people who put themselves in a position to ignore truth. That's these people. And the truth is revealed. It really did not matter in a sense of what the next miracle that was done. It just further revealed the sinfulness of their unbelieving heart. I would tell you that is most often the case with people that I encounter who are always after one more miracle from God, one more sign from God. If I just had one more sign from God, then I would believe. If I got one more sign, then then I would really know. And my answer is typically be really careful because the evidence we see from Scripture is that people who are always looking for more and more and more and more, no matter what the next sign is, it always seems to reveal that the heart issue is really they don't trust. They don't trust. But... We also know from Luke's writing in Acts. There are times that Luke gives updates of how the church is growing, right? Jesus has has risen from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. The church is going out in the power of the Spirit. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, check out what Luke says. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that cool? A large number of priests, a large number of most likely the, those who, who, who really struggled to believe that he really was who he said he was. I'm going to repeat because I, maybe we should repeat it more often right now. You and I, we don't cancel anybody. We are not a cancel culture in the kingdom of God. You and I don't cancel anybody. Only God knows who believes and who will not believe. 
Therefore, as long as somebody has breath, I'm going to continue to pray and I'm going to continue to share with them the light, the truth of who Jesus is. I am not going to give up. I am not going to cancel just because they may seem to reject. We see the evidence in Scripture. There were some of those priests that even the miraculous resurrection did not lead them to believe, but there were others who did. God knows who will, and he knows who won't. That's not for you and I to determine. We continue to pray, and we continue to share. Jesus reminds us how shocking it can be sometimes about who actually believes, right? Some of you have heard those stories along the way, and somebody tells you, hey, did you hear so-and-so met Jesus? And you're like, the so-and-so I know? <laughs> like, that dude? And every once in a while, we're just reminded how magnificent his grace really is and how miraculous a heart change he can bring. Check out what Jesus says here, verse 31. That's exactly where he's going. He says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation, that's, he's talking to these people, and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. What is he talking about? Well, we can look in our Bibles back in the first part, in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings, and we read this story of who we know as the Queen of Sheba. Now, a lot of people don't know where Sheba is. Today, it's Yemen. That's, that's the location uh, geographically. It was in that day known as the ends of the earth. In other words, she's, she's not of the people of God. She's not of the land of Israel. She is a Gentile. But the story is in 1 Kings that she heard that Solomon had been given so much wisdom and the source of his wisdom was his God. And so she, being a ruler herself, she wants to know who this God is that can give so much reason. She is seeking. She comes to Solomon, and apparently Solomon answers her questions because listen to the queen's response in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9. She says, Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. My question is, where did she learn that theology? Where did she learn that about God? And I think the answer is that God gave it to her through Solomon. She got the truth about who God is. She got the truth about a God who's in control. She got the truth about a God who makes a covenant with his people that he does not break. And don't miss it. Jesus said at the judgment, she's going to speak against you. In other words, she got it. She got it. Here's somebody who is nothing like the generation of people to whom Jesus is talking. They've been in church their whole life. They knew more Bible verses than anywhere else on the planet. She, she's a Gentile. She didn't grow up with prior knowledge of who God is, and she's a woman. In that day, you just need to know that the Pharisees, every Pharisee prayed every day, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile and I'm not a woman. How's that for arrogance? She came at great sacrifice giving of her resources, her time, her effort, and when she heard, she believed, and she responded with praise and with gratitude. Jesus says, she got it. She got it. And if she got it then, he says, do you realize something greater than Solomon is here now? Right? 
Jesus and all that pertains to him, the good news about him, the truth of his glorious kingdom, right? The truth of salvation. The Jews to which Jesus spoke had a far greater king than Solomon, a far greater teacher than Solomon, a far greater kingdom, a far greater message than Solomon because Jesus is there. Jesus continues, verse 32, the men of Nineveh, they also will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So you remember the story? I told you Jonah didn't want to go because they were the worst people on the planet. They were brutal. They just destroyed people, just just beyond your mind how evil the Ninevites could be. But what happened? God turns the light on. They see the truth. They respond in faith. And Jesus says on the judgment day, they are going to stand and testify, right? There is hope in Jesus for even the worst of sinners. I hope you know that. No matter how terrible your past, if you will turn from sin and believe in Jesus, the one who paid the penalty of your sin at the cross, he transforms you from the inside out. The men of Nineveh are a testimony to what God's grace can do with anyone who will turn and believe. I'm thinking through this study this week, I, my, my heart just couldn't help from going. You know, I, I stand in front of a testimony every single week um, because I stand in front of a people, sometimes physically, sometimes online, but I, I stand in front of a people and I get to speak to a people We are following Jesus out of our sin. Some of us following Jesus out of our addiction. We are following Jesus out of our brokenness, broken relationships, right? We are following Jesus, all of us, right? We know what brokenness is. We know what failure is. We know what, but we are a testimony to how big the grace of God really is. And so here's what I want you to see today. Please, I want you to see this today. The question is not, did you grow up in a religious atmosphere? That's not the question because that's what some people struggle with when it comes to being right with God. They're like, well, I just really didn't grow up in church and so I really don't know a whole lot about who God is. I don't know how all this works together. Okay, but that's not the main question. I hope you see that from the story today. The question is not, how moral are you? Come on, I'm not saying we should be bad. That's not the point. But my, my, my point is, the question is not, hey, are you better than me? Are you better than enough people? Are, are you better enough to get in, right? I, I sometimes joke about the fact people treat a right relationship with God sort of like running from a bear. You just got to be faster than the dude next to you. So you just got to be better than a few. You got to be better than some. And hopefully if you're, if you're better than some, you'll be good enough. That, that's not it. That's not the question. The, the, the truth is none of us are good enough. The question is will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? That when you see who he is, one who is willing to do what you could never do for you. Though it's undeserved, he chooses to love you. Then will you turn to him to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I need your forgiveness. I want you to lead me. We're going to wrap it up with verse 33. This is kind of the, the point Jesus puts on it. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand 
so that those who come in may see the light. Now, a lot of times in the Bible when it's talking about the light of the world, sometimes it's referring to us of being the light of the world that we reflect. That's not what this context is. The light here is Jesus. The lamp is Jesus. He is on the lampstand, and he is displaying God's truth for everybody to see. He, greater than Solomon. He, greater than Jonah. His death and his resurrection, the the ultimate sign that confirms he is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. When you see the light and trust him, he says you're going to see even more. And your life will be full. But when you see and you reject, you live in darkness. The call is simply respond obedient to the the light. The issue is not that we need more evidence. (laughs) The issue is that we need to turn. We need to turn. We need Jesus. Because our good works are never going to pay the price for our sin. But he did. The Bible says that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If you will turn from sin to Jesus, you will be flooded with light. I once was blind, but now I see. The evidence is sufficient. Jesus is the truth. Will you follow? Here's my couple of questions for you today. They're shorter today, all right? Question number one, what truth did God speak clearest to you from this text? Come on, what was it? What was it that stood out to you the most? Second question, how could that truth change how you live this week? What's the truth that stood out to you the most and how could that change how you live this week? I don't know what that answer is for you. For some, it might be that today it's time for you to respond to the good news of Jesus. You've heard me say it today. You may have heard it even before now. The good news of a Jesus who would die for our sin was buried, third day arose. That if you call upon him in faith, by God's grace, he forgives and he embraces you. For some of you, that's the truth you heard today that you need to act on, and it won't just change your life for this week. It will change your life for all of eternity. For some of you, it may be that the truth you've heard today will change the the why behind what you do this week. Like, it'll change why you do the good things that you will do this coming week, right? You are not doing those good things to earn God's favor. That will wear you out. But when you start to operate and do those good things in the joy that God has extended his favor to you, not because I deserved it, but because of by his grace, he's forgiven me, he's embraced me, now I do the good things that I do with joy. That may be what changes your week. Maybe for some of you, what's going to change this week is God's calling you to pray again and to share again with that person you have hung up on. Because you watch them live a life that looks like it's running from God. You've tried to share, and they kind of threw it back in your face. And our tendency is to going to go, they're never going to. And maybe today has been the reminder for you that you and I don't cancel anybody. And maybe it'll change your week this week that you're going to spend a little more time on your knees praying. You don't don't have to visualize how in the world it's going to to be God, but 
pray. Or maybe it's just as simple as he's light. And recently God has shown you something. Something about him or something that he wants you to do. What you going to do with the light? going to turn and walk away? Or are you simply going to say, okay, Jesus, I will follow you. It is life-changing. Are you willing? Jesus, I thank you so much that you are willing to speak difficult things to us. You love us enough that we can see clearly that the good news starts with the bad news that none of us deserve. None of us deserve to be right with you. None of us deserve forgiveness. But God, that's where you start. And today I pray that you'd help us to see that truth, God, that whether, whether this is the first time that we've been introduced to the truth of who you are or for some of us, it is the danger that we have grown up in the atmosphere where we've heard so many Bible stories and we, we know the laws of what to do and not to do. And it is, it is really easy sometimes for us to fall into the trap of thinking our morality, our religion, is what gets us in. And in the meantime, we miss your heart. Today, we ask you to forgive us. And we ask you to give us eyes that can see. God, this week for your people, the truth that you have spoken to them today, God, whatever that may look like, God, whether it's changing our perspective on why we do what we do, whether it's praying for somebody we've given up on, God, maybe it's the simple obedience of the last thing you've told us to do. God, thank you for giving us eyes to see. Will you give us faith to believe? It's in the name of Jesus that I ask it today.